Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, folks? This is our episode with Dr. Anders Ericsson. In it, we cover a range of topics, but mainly we deconstruct, demystify the idea of being a genius. I mean, this this is so important because I feel like there is this vague representation of what a genius is. And we, when in our society, we put it in a place where it's sort of this unreachable goal. So what Dr. Erickson's work is doing is kind of giving the power back to the people in that we can all do this. We can all become geniuses. We, we are have we have that gift already innately within us. So I think you will truly enjoy this episode. It was really fun to have Dr. Anders on the show just to discuss it. The book is called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Highly recommend this read. Wonderful book. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, both at the human xp please make sure that you get there follow us on twitter find us on facebook give our page a like uh if you enjoy what we're doing here obviously just become a member help us cover server costs bandwidth right now is just overloaded and i'm of course paying for that out of my own pocket so if you guys could just help us cover that i would i would be sincerely thankful but otherwise, this was a, such a fantastic episode, and I just felt so passionate about this work. I had to bring Dr. Anders on to the show and just really, really dig into, you know, what makes people so good at what they're doing. How do we figure out, you know, what, what makes a genius a genius? So I think you guys will really enjoy this episode, and thank you so much for listening. The human experience is studying the science of expertise with our guest, Mr. Anders Ericsson. Anders, my good sir, welcome to HXP. My pleasure to be talking to you. So Anders, the, the book we are talking about is uh, Peak, the book that you wrote with uh, your co-author, Robert Poole. I found this book amazing. I, I found an article, actually, that you wrote and I read it, and I knew that I just wanted to bring you on to the show. But we'll, we'll get into the book. We're gonna we're gonna get there. I I kind of want you to how did how did you become? I mean, how did you get into studying this this expert kind of? How how did you get into studying experts? Well, you know, it's uh, like most things in life. You know, there are kind of accidents, but I think there's a red thread that goes through almost as far back as I can remember, you know, that I, and I know a lot of other people are really interested in, you know, what is it that you can do if you really want to be as good as you can be? And and I think I was brought up in a family that, that really supported this idea that 
you know, if, if you were willing to seek out the right kind of teachers and, and do the right kind of things, uh, there really weren't uh, any things that limited you from being successful. And, and I think, um, so, so my real first commitment was when I did my dissertation, I started studying problem solving and, and, and I did that by having people think out loud while they were solving, you know, sort of laboratory type problems. And, and what I found interesting is, you know, the differences in the thoughts and, and, and especially you can understand a lot of the differences is in people's success in solving problems by kind of hearing what they're thinking about as they're trying to solve the problem. Right. And, and, and then I guess the next step here, I was uh, invited to go to the United States and, 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 and kind of apply this methodology. And I met a researcher who was interested in the question here of, can you really increase your short-term memory? And, and so we basically agreed here. He was interested in whether you could, and I was more interested in what are the differences in the thinking that's associated with different performance. But your your background is in psychology, then, right? Uh, that's correct. I'm actually started out in nuclear physics at the Royal Institute of Technology, but uh, eventually I got more interested in, in psychology at the university. So I kind of transferred over. Nuclear physics. Wow, I feel I feel like I should fix my hair. Um, <laughs> I, I found this book intriguing from you know the different levels and the different steps that you go through. First of all, the first kind of thing that you say is that there is no gift. Like no one is kind of born with this sort of talent. Am I am I on track here? Uh, exactly, and and I think what we're kind of saying is is something. Uh, you know, very similar to what you were saying, but slightly more in the scientific flavor where we don't know that there are people who exhibit very exceptional performances in any domain uh, that do so without there being kind of a training history that would be sufficient to explain how they're able to do that. Um, And I guess we start out in our book talking about Mozart and his ability here of of just listening to any kind of sound and being able to tell which kind of musical note that was associated basically with that sound frequency. Mm-hmm. For the average person, these these ideas can be daunting in learning a new language, I mean, picking up chess. I mean, I'm, I'm an avid, I, I love that you use the chess analogy in your book. I'm an avid chess player and, you know, and and the, the thinking for me it very much applies because you you talk about how a chess player can walk away from a game and kind of in their mind through memory they can remember where the board is and where the pieces go let's talk about that a little bit and and i think that's kind of is the key idea that goes through all types of expertise is that you're actually changing uh, your mind and your brain so you basically can actually mentally generate uh, information. So, you know, like some chess players, as you were pointing out, you know, they can play without seeing the chessboard. So you have one player who sees the chessboard and another one who's looking away. And a skilled chess player can pretty much play as good a game of chess uh, while they're watching, uh, you know, can't see the chessboard. And I think that idea here of 
that you can see that not just the photograph of the chessboard, but you can actually analyze it and see opportunities and you can plan out sequences of moves so you would be able to tell now what is the most the best move for you in a given situation. That kind of ability of being able to have that the mental thoughts and the the kind of support that you need for that type of planning and reasoning, uh, that I think is the hallmark of expertise. And what we're claiming here is you're not born with that. That is something that you acquire over very extended periods. You kind of gradually refine your abilities uh, to get to the highest levels. But I mean, I mean, don't you think that there are certain genetic factors that may give an advantage to some people versus others. For me, for example, running this show, I mean, that that I have a voice, you know, that is kind of easy to listen to through the radio. I mean, d- doesn't that give me sort of an advantage versus someone who doesn't have a voice that that is sh- suited for radio? Well, the, the way I would respond to that is that when we've looked here at performances, and I think when it comes to being a good host for a radio show, I guess there aren't really any established metrics that would allow different people to sort of be measured on on that uh, performance scale. Mm -hmm. But if we look at sports and and music and chess, and uh, I guess we've also looked at professions like, you know, success in surgery, uh, when you how well your patients are basically uh, the outcome of your patients after you know, a certain amount of time, so you can really judge whether somebody removed all the cancerous tissue. Mm-hmm. We actually don't, can't find now what are those limits that would actually exclude some people from uh, being successful in these domains, with one exception, and that exception is body size. Uh, so the length of your bone seems to be influenced by a process that you can't influence by training. Uh, so it, I guess it's good, you know, to be, uh, if you're a center at, in NBA, being very tall is going to be critical. Uh, if you want to be a world-class gymnast, being very short is actually going to be very advantageous. Uh, and then there's all sorts of intermediate uh, relations to your body size. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes to pinpointing anything else, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. What I am saying is that having searched for it for like 30 years, I've yet to find, you know, compelling evidence that some people are born with certain kinds of abilities or characteristics that uh, basically uh, is really critical to their success when it comes to performance. Okay, so I mean, so moving moving past that, then it comes down to deliberate practice. You talk about deliberate practice and purposeful practice. And just the idea of putting the practice in, right? Right, and, and I think that is uh, probably where I think our book is making a, a sort of a major contribution or point, is that all practice is not equal. Uh, you know, some people talk about when you go out and play a game of golf, you know, that you're kind of practicing. Uh, and uh, I guess when you play doubles with your friends, you know, you're kind of engaged in practice. And People talk about, you know, a doctor, you know, diagnosing patients, you know, that that's sort of practice. And what our point is that most of the time when you're actually doing things like that, uh, you're really not changing your performance. You're not able to actually improve how well you're doing things. It's more that you're 
do the same thing, maybe a little bit less uh, with less effort. So we so talk like a about, muscle memory type thing. Well, we basically argue that that in order to change your behavior, you have to engage in what we call purposeful practice. So instead of just trying to do as well as you can, uh, you're actually pinpointing something in your performance that you can change. And this will give an example that I often uh, refer to. Assume that you miss in a doubles game uh, a backhand volley. Mm-hmm. Well, the game will just continue. Okay, so let's assume that you encounter the same situation uh, the next day. Are you going to be more able now to react to that situation? And the argument is probably not. Uh, so if you want to change your backhand volley, if you instead now engage here in purposeful practice, trying to improve your backhand volley, if you have a coach that now can basically allow you to stand there ready to return the backhand volley, and as you now acquired kind of the fundamental correct way of hitting the ball, he can then make it more difficult by forcing you to move away from the net and then eventually embed it here in rallies. That type of very focused training where you're allowed to do several, you know, very similar uh, 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 actions, that is actually effective in changing your performance. So much more than basically just accumulating more playing time uh, in tennis. And you can take that same example in pretty much any activity uh, and basically hone in on one thing and then you develop a training environment that allows you to do this thing and thereby really improve that particular aspect that is then sort of embedded in how you react to uh, uh, future situations. Right. I mean, I feel like I feel like becoming an expert, becoming world class in what you're doing. I mean, everyone wants that. You know, everyone kind of strives for that. Or the people who are really driven in in whatever regard in in what they're doing, they're they're trying to be the best at it, right? So, I mean, what is that one common thing that you found while you were studying these experts that was the the common denominator? Was there any? So so let's go back to chess, where there's actually some really good uh, data on, uh, and and they've actually interviewed people, chess players who are playing in tournaments, so they have chess ratings, uh, and then basically ask the question, what is the kind of activity that you can engage in? So if we try to estimate how much you've been doing of this activity, that actually correlates with how good a chess player you are. And what they found was that the best kind of, uh, or the activity that uh, seems to be most highly correlated and actually explains almost half of the variance in in chess ratings Mm -hmm. is the amount of time that you spend by yourself studying chess. And and one way that you can study chess is to, you know, uh, play out master games from books. But instead of just looking to see what moves they're making, you can kind of put yourself in that, situation and now try to make the next move and then you can immediately see here did you actually pick the move that the master players picked and if you didn't you may have to sort of really think through here why would the world-class players pick a different move and i guess today you know we have such good uh programs for chess playing 
that you can actually ask the chess program when you're actually playing out a particular uh, a chess game, uh, and that, and you get immediate feedback, and that will now lead you to sort of question how you actually analyze that situation, because if you picked a different move from the one that actually is the best move for that particular position, mm -hmm. then there's room for improvement. And, and you need to now figure out here why you didn't consider that move and, and figure out how you re need to rethink in order to be able to uncover that move when you encounter a similar situation in the future. So, so I mean, are we talking about a sort of level of heuristic learning where you're kind of learning it for yourself or, I mean, is, is that part of what's important to this or is, I mean, you, I know that in the book that you say that you need someone there teaching you and someone kind of giving you feedback on what you're practicing and how you're practicing it. Right. So you need somebody to kind of give you feedback. So I guess, you know, when you play chess, you know if you lose at the end, but you don't necessarily know what kind of moves you should have been doing differently during the game uh, to basically have avoided that loss. Uh, so the more that you actually have either a program or a very skilled person actually give you immediate feedback as you're doing something like picking a chess move or hitting a chess ball, uh, you know, where you actually try to place it. Uh, then you can get actually that immediate feedback and now you can more easily train and make changes to your performance so you incrementally over time making all these gradual changes that eventually will now kind of give you this expert performance uh, that you desire and I guess our point is that much of those changes is really happening in your mind so when you're actually, you know, returning a serve, uh, a very skilled tennis player can actually, even before the server make contact with the ball, start making guesses that are better than chance about where that ball is when it, uh, going it's to come. Going to go. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and the same thing in other kinds of sports. And, and, and even when it comes to teachers, uh, one of the findings is, that the best teachers, the teachers that are able to help their students improve most uh, during a school year, they are the ones that when they look at a video of a class situation, they will be able to pick out, you know, potential problems. Uh, a student who is no longer engaged and may actually now disturb their neighbor or do something disruptive. So they can actually intercede well before now that student is doing something. And, and I would argue that virtually any human interaction ha has that element that skilled individuals are able to kind of anticipate uh, what's going to happen and can therefore get an advantage over other people who lack that skill of anticipating what's going to happen. So it's also a, it's a pattern recognition that's happening. Right. So basically your previous experience allows you now to kind of see the situation in, in a much richer fashion. So. For example, we know that soccer players, uh, because you can't see all the players at once, they actually move their head around so they have a, a description here where all the players are and where they're kind of heading to. So if you were to get the ball, you would now be able to pass it to somebody who would have a much better opportunity to do something with the ball because of your 
you know, view here of what is going to happen and, and, and by then, you know, basically taking advantage of that knowledge. So it's clearly patterns that you recognize, but it's in some ways more, I would argue, like a, a, a clear situational description that even allows you now to sort of think about options uh, rather than more instinctively trying to do something that seems right. Because experts, they seem to actually have that opportunity of, of reviewing their options and thereby, you know, if they make something that doesn't turn out, they can actually return to that situation and try to figure out what is it that they actually didn't pay attention to uh, that would actually explain now why that wasn't a very good option. So we're starting to develop a kind of picture of how this this happens, I think. And I I want to bring up I want to bring this up because the the 10,000 hour rule. I think this was I mean this was pop- popularized by Malcolm Gladwell and Mr. Gladwell if you hear this my apologies for what I'm about to say but um I just I think it was parroted by a lot of my friends in the startup industry in the the entrepreneurship industry they just Oh, you have to have the 10,000 hours in and you know, it would just make me want to kind of vomit. And you, 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 you kind of changed the thinking on this. And there was, I think even, uh, Mr. Gladwell even put out, um, a retraction on, on the rule itself and that perhaps the, the, the data was misinterpreted, right? Well, you know, I- I think there are basically two points uh, that I want to make about Malcolm Gladwell. He he cited our work on musicians, and and he basically made the claim that that there was something magical about ten thousand hours uh, because he found that our group. Now the problem was that it was just the average that was ten thousand hours at age twenty, uh, as opposed to that everyone was above that limit. Uh, but I guess our point was uh, two things. One is that there's no magical hours uh, that are necessary, and, and it depends on the domain. Uh, and in fact, if you want to be winning an international piano competition, I guess I estimate that it's more like 25,000 hours that is necessary for somebody to actually win a competition. There are other domains where, you know, you basically can become world-class. So, in, in this kind of curious memory uh, uh, task where you remember numbers, you know, we showed that at least when we did the research, we produced somebody who got the world record here for a number of digits that they could memorize when they're presented one per second. Uh, but that was, you know, 400 hours uh, was basically all that was needed to kind of reach uh, that extreme level. Uh, so, so I think the point is, and maybe the most important issue that people are not paying attention to is, it's not hours that you do things, it's hours where you actually engage in this purposeful practice, where you ideally are working with a teacher, so then I guess it would meet the criteria for deliberate practice. So you actually are identifying things that you want to change and then the teacher is actually helping you find out what is the kind of training that would allow you now to make that kind of inching up of, of gradually stretching yourself to a higher level. And then once you reach that goal, 
you know, you look for something else that you can gradually stretch while you're engaging in this purposeful practice by doing similar things with immediate feedback where you actually can inch yourself uh, to the goal that you set. So so this idea here that just doing things for 10,000 hours does not produce experts. And and in fact, as I was pointing out here, playing, you know, 10,000 hours of chess is probably not going to get you anywhere close to that. And in fact, we don't, you know, apart from the initial training that you get when you actually start playing chess, but once you get to, you know, where you're competing in chess tournaments, just playing more chess is just more or less that you're executing the same skill. Mm-hmm. You really need to challenge yourself. And, and if you can find ways that you fail, that's an opportunity to improve. That's a beautiful segue. Perfect. And because you you talk about comfort zones and I you know I hear this a lot from people who uh, talk about you know self-help and improving yourself and just growing as a human being we need to grow or move past where we are comfortable exactly and and I think anybody who has tried to make a change in their habits of some sort uh, you know, realize that it's so easy to just keep doing what you have been doing. But if you want to change it, that's actually going to require you to, you know, be consciously aware so you can actually now control your behavior and then gradually uh, uh, gain that new sort of habitual skill that uh, uh, you, you were really desiring. And, and it's sort of, I guess I often, you know, mention, you know, if you want to improve the weights that you can lift in a maximal lift Mm -hmm. if you keep basically just lifting weights that are very light Mm -hmm. it's not going to make a difference so what you really need to do is to push that limit and and we talk about in the book here about when you push your limits it's you put pressure on your bodily system so actually the cells will now signal and produce biochemicals because they're being pushed outside of this comfort range and that will then uh, elicit or activate genes that will produce capillaries and do all sorts of physiological adaptations. Now obviously it's really critical that you don't push that boundary so much that you actually break something. So it's a very tenuous, there's this ideal zone where you actually are stimulating this growth, but you're not basically putting yourself at risk for breaking something. Hmm. You know, I love I love what you guys are doing because it's it's just it demystifies this sort of elusive, amorphous, unreachable, unreachable level of oh, you're a genius, and you know. It, and in in our world, in in you know the way things are, it just it there's such a high level of competition, and you're you're constantly competing. And then when you hear about someone who is just naturally or you know whatever it is a prodigy at something, you just it, it's almost a sense of defeat. You almost feel defeated, you know. And as an average person, you just you're just like, oh, okay, well, I'll never be able to do that, you know. So what your work has done, I think, is it has demystified it and it has removed this sense of 
enigma from, you know, this, this idea of becoming an expert, becoming world-class at doing something. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I think that's a terrific summary. And, and what I would argue that a lot of people have talked about that you can improve. What I'm hoping that our book is doing is providing additional information now on the path that other people have taken who actually reached a higher level of performance. And, and I guess what we're finding, the more research we're doing, we're not finding these people who, you know, just discover their gifts. And in fact, I think it's a very counterproductive view that a lot of college students and other people have, that they kind of go around sniffing at different activities, hoping that they will find their gift. Uh, and, and I guess what Robert and I talk about in the, especially in the last chapter of the book, you know, is this idea that you're the creator of your own performance. Uh, you're actually creating your own gifts uh, by engaging now in the kind of training activities that will then allow you to actually be able to do the things you want to do. So that it's really key here, you know, to kind of start your quest here towards doing something. I mean, you can always change and do something else, but just basically being there waiting for you to discover something that, I guess, from the evidence that we have, just doesn't exist, uh, is a very unproductive way of spending your college years. It's, it's interesting. I mean, it, I mean, when we think about, when we think about someone who's attempting to reach this peak level of performance and everything that they have to do to get to that point, I mean, where would you say, you know, through the research you've done and the people you've studied, where would you say the biggest stumbling block is for a person? Well, I personally think that one of the issues uh, is this conception here that, you know, you're starting to doubt yourself and that you should be doing something else. Now, there obviously are domains that are so highly competitive that, you know, even if everyone was equally able to succeed, uh, you know, there would be a low probability here that you would be one of them. Uh, but I think in general, I believe how parents and other individuals can actually provide you with support and help here to, you know, and especially by finding the right kind of teacher, that's how you can grow. And I think the focus may should be maybe more on this idea here that you can acquire skills that really allow you now to be independently contributing to, uh, you know, basically all sorts of experiences of yourself and of other people. So if you're a musician and you can actually produce music that other people will actually be moved by, and, and, and then you can really do something. And, and I, I guess I think... Acquiring that level of skill, and if you end up now finding a path where you can be a professional composer or, you know, musician, you know, that's great. But maybe the focus should be on having a lot of people being able to reach that kind of point where they can really assess what they're doing and they're sufficiently skilled that they can actually produce things that are valued by other people whether it's by drawing or, or basically music or basically writing or, or basically thinking through various kinds of problems. So you produce uh, scientific solutions or other types of solutions. 
but generally giving people those mental tools that allow them to be contributors to our society. I think that is probably where I see the more general implications. Uh, I, I agree that some people should be given the opportunities here to push the bounds and, and you know, getting resources so they would be able to do this full time. Uh, but obviously not all of us can do that. And uh, so helping people here to develop these abilities uh, in, in activities involving social interaction and, and other things that they really enjoy, I think should be the main goal. And then we can see here how some of them uh, some people would be able to give them the time here to kind of, you know, uh, be uh, making it full time and being reaching sort of world or international level. Yeah. And I mean, there's many ways that I could take kind of the, this conversation at this moment, but I, I want to bring up um, the case of Sir Roger Bannister. And I'm, you know who I'm referring to, right? Uh, I certainly do. Okay. So, sir, so for anyone listening, Sir Roger Bannister, the year is 1954, and no one thought that anyone could run a mile in under four minutes. And suddenly, this guy named Roger Bannister, he is able to do it within under four minutes, and and suddenly, everyone else is also able to run the mile in under four minutes. Where... I mean, what is, Anders, what is, tell me, explain to me what is going on in this sort of network of belief that we have when something is impossible, when we think is something is, is impossible, and then so we see someone do it, accomplish it, and then suddenly people are able to do it themselves. Well, and, and I think uh, when it comes especially to motor skills and, and sports and music, what you do see is that there is not just a change in how high people can perform, but there also is a difference in how people are being trained. And I guess we kind of associate these changes now in the type of training that you're doing and sometimes how early you start training as explanation now how people can actually reach higher levels. And, and I think in, in the running example, there may be you know, we had runners, especially long distance runners, that were so vastly superior to everyone else. But once it became clear, the kind of training that they engaged in, now it was actually something that other people could acquire. Uh, and actually, by training in this new way, uh, they were able to reach and even surpass uh, that those uh, pioneers. Um, but I mean, I, I, I want to get into the, the, the psychological aspect of it because I, I mean it, because there, it, it did seem like there was a, a psychological barrier to this. I mean, outside of just, I mean, yes, of course, the, the training aspect and working hard for, to get to this point. Yes, that, that factors in, but also if, if you believe that something is impossible, then it will be that it will be impossible right? Uh, that's certainly true. And, and, and I think that actually Bannister, you know, he was, uh, you know, a medical doctor. Uh, so he was actually forced to train in a little bit different way than many of the other uh, runners who were kind of not basically uh, uh, training to become doctors. And I don't know to what extent, you know, basically his, the need for him 
to actually get effective training during much shorter time was contributing now to his ability here to actually do this. Because, and I think the other issue uh, that I've read was that people were kind of afraid that if they push themselves, you know, maximally that they may actually die. You know, it was (laughs) sort of, but I think partly because of his medical training, I think he realized that basically, unless you have a pathological condition, uh, you don't really are able to push yourself so hard that you're going to die from the process. And, and that may actually have at least been kind of part of the issue that once other people saw here that it was possible, then those fears here that you would basically exhaust yourself to the point that you were going to drop dead, you know, those were not realistic. But I think that's part of what the exciting thing is when you're exploring the limits of performance is you don't really know what the limits are. And I guess what we sometimes find is that the way you get beyond those limits is not by kind of pushing them, but actually finding now a different way of training that actually allows you now to get results without actually, you know, changing that particular constraint. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. Your answers are intriguing because, I mean, it's it's not what I expect. I mean, you're not you're not saying, oh, okay, we'll do it do it this way, but kind of change I mean you're not saying change your mentality change change the way that you're training and the way you look at training and am I interpreting that correctly yeah I think you're completely right and I think that idea that training should be a preparation now for you being able now to find ways that you can rely on when you're competing and and during training you can actually explore all sorts of possibilities uh because when you're competing, and especially the Olympics, I mean, that's a one-time thing, you really need to have prepared so you can give your very best performance. You're not trying to change anything during the, during the Olympics. All the training is actually happening before uh, you engage in the run. And, and, and I think kind of that idea of understanding yourself and, and experimenting having a trainer and coach that can actually help you see how making that particular change will actually improve you somewhat. And once you start looking at, you know, the difference between the very best uh, runners or athletes, they're minuscule very often. Uh, so, so basically making some small changes may actually be sufficient, you know, to allow you to you know, be a winner as opposed to coming in second or third. I mean, so you, do, you, do you think that, do you think that picking, like, for example, picking up piano at a late age or something, do you think that that would inhibit the, le- the amount of learning or the amount of proficiency versus picking it up while you were, you know, 10 or 11 or 15? Well, I think there is some evidence suggesting that when you actually compare uh, people, uh, you know, as adults, uh, you find that there's a different uh, kind of myelinization. So basically these fast uh, circuits uh, of the brain, that there are areas that are myelinated, uh, which is at least correlated now with an early start of music training. And, And we know from other domains that, for example, ballet and uh, that you have this turnout of your feet uh, for ballet dancers, 
And that is something that you need to actually practice between ages 8 to 12, because that's when the bones calcify. And it turns out that, you know, it's not that they're, uh, the joints are more flexible in ballet dancers. It's more that the resting position of, of the feet has actually changed because you've actually pushed uh, that development of the joint. And, uh, and that turns out to be something, changing the joints is not something that you would be able to do as an adult. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of, it's more that you have to catch that period during development when you can actually now get the training changes and adjustments. And uh, now how much is basically something that you wouldn't be able to acquire when you're an adult? You know, that's a really interesting question that we're just starting to learn. Hmm. Uh, in, in our book, we kind of point to, for example, the cab drivers in London, you know, memorizing some 25,000 streets and their interconnections. You know, and that all that learning is happening when they're adults. Uh, so it's very clear here that, you know, we find all sorts of examples of people can, who can learn tremendous amounts as adults. Mm-hmm. Now, if you actually put people in, you know, in competition, would there be an advantage for somebody who did some training as a young individual? Now, that is something that I guess we don't really know. Uh, but the potential for learning as adults is vastly underrated and, and, and we see all sorts of examples here of people, you know, achieving amazing things as adults. Uh, Interesting. And it, it, it really is. I, I, I find this work so intriguing just because I, you know, I personally, I, I push myself to, you know, that point, that brink of madness where I, I feel like I have to master everything that I do. And, you know, but let's let's make this conversation a little bit practical. We've gone through the theory and, you know, what can an average person do to, you know, for their everyday lives to get be better at, you know, something that they're doing that they want to get better at doing? Well, uh, I, I guess uh, to be sort of general, I think the important thing is to kind of identify something that you really care about. Um, so you want to be better at something, and 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 I guess we talk about in the book, you know, people who at uh, various ages, you know, want, you know, they've been playing the guitar for, uh, you know, years and years, uh, but they basically found that they sort of reach kind of a plateau. Uh, in those cases, I think the ideal is to go to a music teacher, uh, who's worked especially with people adults. Uh, and that basically seems to just open up doors uh, because it's very hard to know by yourself here what you need to do, but a teacher can actually take a look at what you can do and now actually, you know, kind of create a map uh, for a path that would actually allow you now to be able to do things that you thought were impossible. Uh, Now, there may be domains here where we don't really have uh, available teachers and and then our recommendation is, you know, identify somebody who is able to do what you would like to do and then maybe, you know, try to find out some kind of social exchange uh, that would allow you now to have this person help you uh, improve and, you know, share what experiences they had about 
improving. Uh, we basically uh, uh, Freakonomics Radio invited people who wanted to improve various things to uh, volunteer to be subjects for some radio shows they were going to be doing, and uh, they got like six thousand responses and and now i guess that what they're trying to do is to organize this in groups of particular skills that people are interested in and and provide now the opportunity for teachers to you know connect up with uh students and and especially those teachers who have experience of you know teaching students with a particular background so you would actually be able to point to your students and show ideally with videotapes how they were able to get from this point to some other point. And I think as this is going to happen, hopefully there will be a sharing of that experience and knowledge that would allow now people not having to sort of find the path to improvement by themselves, but they can actually draw on the uh, successful paths that other people have discovered. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I get that. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because the... The ideas that, you know, we've had through science in regards to the brain and neuroplasticity and our ability to kind of learn new things and generate new synapses, I mean, that paradigm has changed in the last 20 years or so. I mean, 20 years ago, people, scientists were saying, no, the brain stays a certain way. You have a certain amount of brain cells and that's it. And that that's the way it remains. But now it's it's we're we're talking more about how you know this the brain has this capacity to regrow and and continue to learn and i mean what's your what are your thoughts on that well you know i, I think it's very interesting uh that that we know that there are these changes but i think personally i'm more interested in the behavioral implications and and i guess i've been looking for limits you know, things that you really can't change by training. And and by more or less looking for those limits, what I've found is that it's very hard to find hard evidence for limits. Uh, when I talk to people who are, you know, near elite, uh, and then for various reasons, they decided to stop. It wasn't like they felt that they had hit a ceiling. It was more that they didn't really see that compared to other people you know, of the same age, uh, that they weren't very likely here to be able to, you know, improve uh, sufficiently to be able to overcome uh, these individuals that had a, a higher performance at that time. But I think the question here about searching for limits, and if there are such limits, I think that would be really helpful. And I'm not saying that there aren't any limits. What I'm saying is I've yet to find, you know, affirmative, you know, hard evidence for those limits. And as long as we don't have evidence for those limits, I think we should encourage people, you know, to explore. And, and that's what I'm so excited here about people, middle-aged individuals who are now putting in, you know, a couple of hours, uh, maybe every other day, uh, you know, pursuing some uh, skill or, or, or some kind of expertise that they always wanted and finding now that, you know, they're able to make achievements here that they kind of thought were impossible yeah yeah definitely i mean i i, I yeah i agree i think that um 
you know, we we do need to encourage people to learn new things, and especially people who think that they can't or have this idea in their mind that maybe they they are too old to do such a thing. Um, in the book, you talk about the dark side in of believing in innate talent. And what did you? I mean, what did you mean when you were when you were talking about that part in your book? Well, we were basically, you know, if you believe that you can't do things, that obviously is the killer here. It's not going to make you very motivated to engage now and trying to stretch. It's sort of, you know, this kind of sense here that you are, you know you know, behaving irrationally here, trying to do things that it's well known that you will never, ever be able to master. And I think that is a really destructive idea. And and I think I mentioned similarly this idea here of going around looking for your unique ability, I also think is a sort of a destructive. So if you use the time by basically finding, you know, a working goal uh, that you want to basically pursue, so you find some activity that you want to improve, I believe that you will, get, as soon as you get to that point of being independent, so you can actually evaluate what you're doing, and you can kind of help yourself keep learning, and you can, you know, generate things that other people value, now you've kind of gotten the experience here, what it takes to reach that level and I guess what we're hoping is that if you can give that experience to children and adolescents, you know, they can draw on that experience in one domain and generalize to see here what it really takes. Because if you have the view here that if you can't get it without effort, you know, then it's basically wasted time, then obviously you're going to be limited by that belief. Yeah, yeah, uh, certainly. Um you know, we're we're approaching the end here, Anders. But I I kind of wanna I wanna touch on uh, people or just the idea of um, being good. Like I I found myself kind of um, getting really good at anything that I tried. So I would get extremely bored at everything I did, and. Um, I mean, is is there what is what's the danger in you know either being being good at studying or being good at learning things quickly versus having one thing that you are good at and kind of you know the master of all all trades or or you know that old saying. Well, I'm I'm a great believer that if you could you know, pick at least one area and and maybe some people can pick a couple of areas where they can really kind of develop uh, expertise. I think that provides sort of meaning. And and I think that's one of the nice things, at least for me, I've always felt that, you know, you never reach sort of the limits. Uh, And if you even reach kind of the highest limits, and I talk to people who, you know, reach world class, now you can basically go one step further. So it's basically, you know, you can keep challenging yourself. And I think by basically excelling in that, you know, one or two domains, it also provides you with all sorts of social opportunities. And it provides for a career path where, you know, maybe during the beginning here, you're acquiring and you're learning from your teachers, and then you become a teacher, and then eventually, 
you, you will be kind of a mentor and helping young people by supporting them. So it's almost like, you know, you provide sort of a, an opportunity here where you actually can contribute as an individual, not just to yourself, but to, you know, your society and, and make, uh, you know, the world a little bit better place. Uh, because I think it is really important here to find a way here in which you can link what you're doing uh, in the domain of expertise here, uh, that it really has consequences for making things better for other people. Yeah, let's let's definitely hope that, you know, we are making the world a better place for our children's children and, and their children. I mean, I... It, it, the world seems like a really scary place lately, but um, one last question here, Anders, and you know we'll start to close. But do you do you believe that IQ is a variable thing? Well, you know, IQ is just sort of, I guess, uh, what you get when you test people with a particular training procedure. Uh, what what I've found is that IQ, you know, is correlated with how well you do in school because it sort of was designed to kind of test your ability to very rapidly understand things and and, and basically uh, but what we're finding here is that when you look at domains like uh, music uh, uh, go and other kind of domains here where people keep improving what we find is that IQ correlates with performance when you're starting uh, now, this is when you're actually learning kind of the rules and stuff like that. But as you're getting better, we find that it seems like the way you're finding now and generating your performance is mediated by things that you've acquired. You've actually changed the way your brain is working and how you can actually plan and think about things. So at the more skill levels, it doesn't seem that IQ and other cogn- general cognitive abilities are correlated with performance. It's almost like, you know, you've now acquired new structures that are actually, uh, you know, uh, responsible for your higher level of performance. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I I really love about, you know, what you guys are doing is just you you're you're removing the 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 kind of the kind of unreachability, you know, like this the sort of idea that, okay, well, some people are geniuses and other people aren't. And that, that, through your work, is it, you're just leveling the playing field. And you're saying that, you know, with enough practice, with the right practice, with deliberate practice, and with the right guidance, and by putting yourself outside of this sort of comfort area that you're in, you can be just as genius, just as good as some of the world-class performers out there. Right. And, and, and I think... You know, this kind of idea here that, that people, you know, really can grow and, and change. And and what I like about the expert performance work is that when people are performing, you know, like in sports and other domains, you want to have fair conditions. And basically somebody who is performing better than other people, everyone recognizes, well, that person was doing better. And I think that the more that we can actually find ways here of of using objective performance on tasks that matters, uh, the criterion for, you know, who should basically be uh, doing various things. That's, I think, uh, what I'm hoping for. Uh, I think a lot of 
our current system is based on this idea that if you're going to be doing well in school, uh, that automatically is predictive of how good you're going to be as a doctor or whatever. And, and I think once you start looking at some of that research, the correlation between how good you were doing when you were being trained in medical school doesn't seem to be a, a good predictor of how well you will actually be as a medical doctor. So the more that we can basically, you know, emphasize how well people are doing as professionals and then see here how we can actually help people, you know, reach that level, I think that would be having the chance here of, of improving outcomes for patients and, and helping other professionals, you know, be able to do a better job uh, that they're assigned to do. Yeah. Well said, my friend. That's, yeah, well put. I, I love that. Um, you know, Anders, I really appreciate you making the time to be here with us today. Um, where can people find your work, buy your book? Well, uh, basically, maybe the best place is a website that Robert Poole and his wife has set up, uh, which is uh, peak the book, one word, dot com. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and I, I, you know, Amazon would probably be a, a good place uh, for a lot of people to find it at a discounted price. Yeah, I highly recommend the book to anyone listening. It really just, it really does open your eyes to kind of the the mystery behind these these high level performers that you know that have that have for so long that have been unreachable and you know and the book is it's a it's a it's a long read it's not it's not like an overnight book and it but it's in in that sense there's a lot of information in it and you know we we had an hour here today so I definitely recommend people pick up the book and kind of check out the work for themselves. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, the more that I think people, you know, feel empowered and, and, and one of the greatest compliments that I know is when people say, you know, when I read your book, I actually contacted a teacher and boy, has that made a difference in my life. Now, basically that may not be for everyone, but, that idea here of possibilities, uh, we shouldn't rule out anything. And when you look carefully at the science, there's very little information that shows that people cannot do things. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, this is the human experience. Uh, such a great episode with Anders Ericsson uh, and his co-author Robert Poole. Uh, who was not able to be here today. The book is called Peak. Go pick up a copy. We will see you guys. You will hear from us next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Anders, my good sir, thank you so much for being here. It was my pleasure.